we did reach out to some of our strongest sort of supporters during the research period and just asked like, hey, would you be willing to pilot this? It's totally new. Like we know we're not an established company, but we do have a vision for how this can be better. And I think like kind of positioning it as a design partner where truly we were getting their feedback so frequently and they could almost help inform what this product was going to look like in the future. I think that's a pretty unique position to be in as a customer. And so I think a lot of people were actually quite excited to take us up on that. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. Mahima Chala, co-founder and CEO at Cocoon, joins us to discuss everything from the process behind Cocoon's early research, how she gained early design partners after user interviews, and converted those partners into early customers frameworks to build in a highly regulated space, and how to then optimize collaboration between design and legal in those highly regulated spaces. We also get into things like how to identify your ideal customer profile, determining where to invest your time and how to default delegate, plus tons of great insights on making intentional decisions, clarifying your values, and building the type of company you want to build. About Mahima, Mahima Chala is the CEO and co-founder of Cocoon. Before Cocoon, Mahima worked at Square building lending products for Square Capital. And prior to Square, she was at Bond Street, which was acquired by Goldman Sachs, and then Morgan Stanley before that. About Cocoon, Cocoon is a leave management platform that simplifies the complexities of compliance, claims, and payroll for a seamless, more empathetic employee leave experience. Cocoon makes employee leave easy. Enjoy our conversation with Mahima Chala. I was hoping we could start with the beginning. And so I was wondering if you could bring us into your world a little bit and tell us the origin story of Cocoon and what inspired you to start the company. The story starts back in 2020 when I was actually working with one of my favorite product councils at Square. And she just happened to mention in passing that she had taken her laptop with her um, to her C-section to apply for her California EDD benefits. And I remember sort of pausing and thinking, what what are you talking about? Doesn't Square pay you? Like, why are you applying for benefits? But also, why are you taking your laptop with you to a C-section? And I didn't think too much of it, other than that seems like a sort of odd experience um, when you're having a child. And then I had a couple of other instances where other coworkers had also mentioned something in passing about leave being really confusing. They weren't really sure how much time they got. It was very confusing from the state. Did they need to apply for something? That's what sort of, I guess, sparked a little bit of a light bulb in my mind around this concept of like, wait, is it actually pretty hard for people to take time off? I I hadn't really thought about it much as I hadn't needed to take a leave before, but I'd heard these instances of like a medical leave or a caregiver leave or a parental leave and people just having a hard time navigating it. And that led to, um, I reached out to Lauren, um, my co-founder and COO, um, we'd been friends for the past decade. And I just kind of mentioned to her in passing, like there's this kind of interesting problem space around leave where I don't know enough about it. It just seems really, really complicated. And we were both really intrigued by it because it felt like one of those basic kind of like human necessities, which is like, of course, life happens. Of course, things happen. Of course, people need the ability to take time away. Why is it actually hard to get that time? Why is it hard to get paid during that time? And that led us to sort of talking to as many people as we could that had taken leave to hear more about their experience. And we kind of kept hearing this resounding sentiment around it being very, very complicated. And then we started to get a sense of, okay, we understand why it's so hard for the person. Why is that actually still so hard when it comes to the company? And so we started talking to different employers, everyone from your squares and stripes of the world where we had come from to your PG&Es and Walmarts and Intuits, just to understand like what makes it so hard to do? Why are there so many things that need to happen behind the scenes in order for someone to take a leave? After four months of research and hundreds of um, employees that had taken leave and employers, uh, we sort of really 
gained conviction that after hearing again, like this is such a nightmare, it's the hardest part of HR. Um, we really gained conviction that there was a massive, massive problem here. It really affects every employer. Most employees take a leave at some point in their career. It's such a human thing and a human need. And so we, we felt like there was a big, big opportunity for us to build something that could be really impactful. And I think we were driven both by the impact of what we could build, as well as the complexity and technical challenge of building software in a space that had never existed. Jerry and I have been looking forward to this conversation for for some time. The part that I've been obsessed with, like every three months or so, there's like a there's a topic that I become obsessed with that it feels like nobody's talking about when it comes to engineering leadership or just the experience of work. You know, a year and a half ago or so, it was burnout. And it was sort of at the time when the pandemic was at a point where many people were experiencing burnout significantly and it, nobody had been talking about it yet. And what's so interesting is like, I also feel like when it comes to extended leave and a lot of the different forms with it, it's nobody's talking about it from a how to do it well, how to make it meaningful, but also nobody's really talking about how to mechanically make it happen and how to make it easy and a core part of the employee experience. And I think what I've really appreciated just in, in some of the research around Cocoon is you all sort of support the holistic element of it. So the the regulation and, and how to functionally do it within a company. But also I, I saw sort of the leave guidance that you provide people and managers and when people have people on their team go on these extended leave experiences, you provide that guidance, which I just think is really great. I think we have a lot of follow-up questions about the problem space and also the founder conviction area. Can you share a little bit more about the intentional approach you had to making the decision to start the company? Because it sounded like you had a lot of different conversations and uncovered a lot of really valuable insights about the problem space. Talk to us a little bit more about what that decision was like. I think a lot of that was really powered by probably this fundamental belief that I had from a pretty young age that one day I think I could start a company, but also a belief that was like, I would only want to start a company if it's something that I felt super excited about and could wake up still excited about 10 years from now. And it felt like there was still more to learn. And it was also something that was doing social good in the world. And I had never really approached it as let me try to find a problem and then build a company around it. It was a little bit more organic of let's just keep doing things that I'm doing in the world. And, and maybe one day I'll stumble upon something that feels worth um, starting a company around. And to be honest, I had this urge to start a company for a couple of years, but I just didn't come across anything that felt worth it until I, I started to kind of like really understand this world of leave. And there's an element of also just trusting your gut here where I felt kind of really obsessed with this problem of just like really wanting to understand more about it, really wanting to understand like why it couldn't be done, why it hadn't been done well, and really feeling conviction that with the, the way that we were sort of thinking about it and that the future that we were envisioning for this, like I hadn't heard anyone talk about that before. I hadn't seen a company do that before. And so it kind of felt almost like my responsibility to be like, if I'm thinking that this thing can be done, it feels like my responsibility to at least try it and see if I can make that something in the world. The conviction probably did come after a good amount of research. I think uh, it did take about four months. And I had, again, gut feeling that, yes, this continues to seem like a massive problem. This continues to seem like something really, really interesting. But I do think it's upon the sort of like hundredth person being like, this is an absolute nightmare. You're kind of like, someone has to do something about it. And I have a vision for this. And so let me do that. And I do feel like I had this point of, all right, I have come to conviction. I, I'm going to start this company probably after that sort of like four months of research period. Can you share a little bit more about the research period? How do you approach that? And also curious when Ember and Lauren came to the picture. I had started lightly exploring this idea. I reached out to Lauren. Lauren came on board in August of 2020. And then Amber, our third co-founder, came on board in November of 2020. So it all kind of happened around the same time. And we were all deeply involved in the research process and early build and everything. And with the research itself, we, again, kept feeling like there is something really big here. We just don't understand it well enough. Like I kept trying to articulate, why is it so painful? And I couldn't really come up with the answer other than saying every single person is telling me that it's really painful. And so that's what drove a lot of the like 
seeking the truth around like, why is it so hard? And the way that we structured that is we wanted to talk to a lot of different people that had taken different types of leave. And so we reached out, of course, to our network and talked to people that had taken leave. But we also put an ad on Craigslist just to try to source people from totally different industries where we might not have a direct connection. It might be harder for us to actually find someone because we did want the widespread view into this problem to to really feel convicted that this is a problem that affects a wide, wide variety of people and not get kind of like pigeonholed into one type of perspective. So that was one piece of it. And then the other was that we really felt like we needed to understand both sides because we kept hearing from individuals that had taken leave. It was so awful. And we kept hearing from people leaders. It was so terrible. But clearly there were different pain points with each of these personas. And so we felt like we couldn't really get the full picture unless we talked to enough people on both sides. And so the way that we approached um, talking to HR leaders was, again, first, it kind of like, I feel like always starts with your network of just um, who do we know that is at a company that could connect us with the HR person at that company. And then we started to try to venture out to get different types of companies. So we really wanted to, yes, understand like what was happening in tech companies, but we really wanted to understand what was happening in like non-tech companies too. So we spoke with banks, we spoke with PG&E, for example, we spoke with Disney, we spoke with with a lot of companies where we were just able to sort of get to someone um, that was in the people world within those companies through some connection or like fifth degree connections. And so I think we ended up with a Google Doc that was 564 pages. And I remember because we recently pulled it up at Cocoon as an artifact and all hands just to sort of take a trip down memory lane and remind ourselves like this whole thing really started with research and just understanding the pain point and putting ourselves in the shoes of the user, whether that is the employer or the employee. We went about structuring it in that way, which also then helped us in developing early mocks and getting feedback on those early mocks and using those connections we'd built for early research on the problem space to then give us input as we continue to build the MVP and so forth. Essentially, those 100 people also became part of the community and stayed the company through their your own yeah. journey. Yeah, we have some um, Carta and Benchling were our first ever customers. And we are still very much in touch with the people that bought us at those companies and that had given us feedback previously. And they've been some of our biggest advocates. So yeah, I really think that we have a big group of people that are very um, supportive of this mission. What do you think is the key to keep them engaged beyond the first conversation? Some of it is actually just finding the people who are inherently interested in this and also share your vision that there could be something better. I think we met a lot of people leaders along the way that have just so deeply experienced the pain around leave. Like they've experienced the pain for themselves and people at their company that have managed leave because they've seen how hard it can be. But they've also seen firsthand the implication on the individual who is trying to go on leave to take care of a sick parent or trying to go on leave to take care of a medical issue and dealing with all of these different claims and pay being wrong and trying to retrieve benefits. And so there's like a lot of empathy that's built for this person that is in a very stressful or a pivotal moment in their life. I think people are just very passionate about this topic too, because a lot of the people that we met through this early research process, it didn't simply feel like a user interview. It felt like someone that we were talking to that genuinely cared about this space, really felt that it was so painful, believed that when we were talking about how we believe it can be different in XYZ ways, they really resonated with that. And so I think they were always, not everyone, but a good number of people were excited when we then reached out three months later and said, hey, we have Figma mocks. Like we'd love to just get 10 minutes of feedback on whether this is like hitting the pain point and people were so happy to hop on like a 15 minute call and be like, yes, this is amazing. Or like, oh, I don't know this part. Like I feel like that was like a hard part and could be better. And that was really nice. You mentioned that some of those people became customers later on and the whole thing started as not transactional at all. How do you navigate that conversation without diluting the, the message? It just happened organically because some company I've been talking to that is serves as a community, they find how do you balance the two? I guess we always 
always thought about it as just being really direct with people. Like we built the MVP and we said to ourselves, okay, we want five early customers because we need to eventually just have this in the hands of people. We did reach out to some of our strongest sort of supporters during the research period and just asked like, hey, would you be willing to pilot this? It's totally new. Like we know we're not an established company, but we do have a vision for how this can be better. And I think a lot of people actually bought into that vision of we, yeah, we totally understand. You don't have everything built yet. We don't support everything we need supported yet, but we're willing to be your early adopter and design part. I think like kind of positioning it as a design partner where truly we were getting their feedback so frequently and they could almost help inform what this product was going to look like in the future. I think that's a pretty unique position to be in as a customer. And so I think a lot of people were actually quite excited to take us up on that. So much so that we actually had way more people raise their hand for it than the original target for the pilot. More than anything, I think not beating around the bush and just directly asking, hey, will you be a pilot partner? Will you be a design partner? It was really helpful for us. Worst case, they say no. Best case, they say yes. I think that's so great. I also am obsessed with the idea of putting out a Craigslist ad to get holistic representation of research. Do you have any tips from that Craigslist ad that stood out or any learnings from that experience of that part of user research? One, it works for sure. I mean, we hadn't done it before. So we were like, okay, well, let's put this out, this request out. And we offered some monetary compensation as well for it. I think in the form of an Amazon gift card, just to compensate people for their time. But we also didn't know whether people would respond to it, whether they'd be interested, whether they might be responding for the wrong reasons, just for kind of like the monetary compensation, but the interview itself wasn't super valuable or something. We just had no idea what to expect. But I will say we, I think we talked to maybe 10, 15 people off of there and it worked. Like we got people who had really taken different types of leave, had different types of experiences and like really, really shared valuable insights with us that inform the product. I think with that, you sort of have to expect like anything. Um, We're kind of like putting out a call for action. It, it is a funnel. So the number of people that actually responded and then went through to be join a phone call with us was obviously a percentage of it. So you just have to be prepared, I think, for a lot of drop off that happens there because there isn't a ton of incentive to do it unless you actually feel like it's worth your while as the person on the other side. But I think that's to be expected. So overall, I'd say it's a great way to get outside of your network and to people that you may, may not know otherwise. I had one other question about, about that early experience, because when you're sharing about the, the four months of research and the insights that that created for you, was the research, was that the, the only thing that you were focused on at that, at that time? Or were you, was that a side research project that you're doing in tandem with another commitment? And then how did the conviction testing part work? At what point in that experience where you're like, I need to commit to this research part full time because this is the thing I'm most excited about? I was really doing, I had left Square in February of 2020 and I'd really started thinking about like a few different ideas in in just general business ideas that had caught my attention and really like June started focusing on the leave space because again, kept hearing this resounding message and decided that that was something worth exploring. And so it was a pretty committed full-time research effort. And then as we started to gain more conviction, it was also thinking about, well, who could we get as like a contract designer for to start out with, even to create Figma mocks? Because at some point, the research moved from understanding the pain point to actually showing really early mocks of something to just get a reaction. Like, how does this compare to something that you've used before? Like, what what still feels painful about this? Or what, what feels easy about this? Or whatever it may be. And we wanted to get a little bit more validation on the direction we were headed because we were taking a very, very different approach to the industry. The industry standard would usually be if someone is going on leave, they would call a representative at one of the companies that was administering leave, go through everything over the phone, a lot of emails, phone calls, PDFs back and forth. Our approach was let's build self-serve software to handle leave for the employer, for the employee. So I think we did need to get some validation that people weren't completely averse to that. And if they were, then why so? And so 
don't know if that is fully answering your question, but the research was a very committed effort. And we also, towards the end of it, in parallel, started creating Figma mocks that we could then bring back and say like, okay, what, what do you think of this? I, th- I think that's super, super helpful in understanding the scope or scale and commitment of that research effort, but then also the insights that that yielded. And at that point, that was the main commitment. And I also really appreciate the importance of having those design mocks early to really start to increase the amount of learning and reactions from folks that you're talking with. I think those are really great insights. After you have the designer to create the early mocks and share with uh, the people you interviewed, and what happened afterwards? So can you walk us through the kind of the, the number of steps and the journey? I'd say June to August was a pretty heavy research of just let's not even we don't even know that we're going to start a company around this. We just want to understand the problem space around August. It was like, okay, we have a lot of conviction. We're going to try this out. Like we want to try to solve this problem. So probably like August to October, it's Figma mocks and and like feedback on those mocks. And then Q4 of 2020, it's building the, the MVP and launching it Jan 2nd of 2021. So in that period of Q4, like October, November, December, 2020, we have the Figma mocks already. We're going back to a lot of the people that we did research with and saying, hey, would you be a design partner? Would you be a pilot partner for Cocoon? And then I think in November, 2020, we make our first ever commitment. And then shortly after in like December, we get our second ever commitment. And so we launch in January with two pilot customers and then actually get a ton more that month and the following months, again, way more than we had anticipated, which was great because then we started to get real feedback on the product. that was sort of the timeline. What factor triggered a lot more people being a partner in January compared to like one in November, one in December? Um, I think it was a combination of things. It was, um, we were really proactive around going, again, going back to everyone that we had talked to and just asking them if they'd be interested in being a partner, pilot partner with Cocoon. Um, I think a lot of people really, again, just believed in this approach of how we were trying to tackle the world of leave and, and the problem set. Um, another is also word of mouth. The HR community is very word of mouth oriented. And I think we had a lot of strong advocates for Cocoon that were willing to sort of be even an early reference customer for another customer or just in passing mentioned to like another friend in HR at another company that like, hey, I'm trying out this thing Cocoon. Like, I don't know, are you interested? And um, and then we got some inbound from that. And a lot of our growth, the vast, vast majority was inbound through people just referring Cocoon to other folks or people moving from one company to another and bringing Cocoon with them. That's a true validation. There is a product market fit. Oh, that at least this is something that people see as a big problem and they all want to have a new solution to it. Yeah, definitely. I think we we really felt like we had strong product market fit pretty early on based on the amount of inbound interest. And I think a lot of that was also, again, driven by the level of research that we had done previously, because we knew exactly what we were solving and we knew exactly how we were solving it and why that was an optimal path. And so I think we just had gained so much conviction in the problem space and the user need that I think also helped in our pitch and our positioning as we started to expand our customer base. Would love to transition the conversation around investor relationships. And so I was wondering, can you share a little bit about your approach to the types of investors that you sought in the early days and how you've approached those relationships? For the investor relationships, a lot of it is, I guess, like somewhat organic in that I'm um, knowing a couple of investors for a while before I had actually started Cocoon and meeting more people in the industry as well. And actually just really stumbling upon people who we felt very aligned with in terms of like aligned around this is a massive problem and a really strong mission and something worth building alignment around how we might think about building a company, um, sort of like the philosophy of team building or just like how we might think about company growth and things like that and the, the different trade-offs that are being made along the way. And then I think an element of just like chemistry, like 
um, when you meet people and you feel like you're jamming with them and they're really understanding you, you're understanding them, you're learning. We, we met a lot of people that we felt like we were learning a lot from as well. Like we're playing a truly strong advisory role. And so a lot of it was organic in some ways because we weren't rushing to raise the next round or something. And we had just had these, again, um, casual conversations along the way and gotten to know people. And then as it got closer to any type of fundraise, of course, then we engaged in more of the financials and things around the company. But by that point, we already pretty deeply understood each other and how we operate and expectations of each other and so forth. I was curious to dive in a little bit more about the alignment of the type of company that you wanted to build and how that aligned with the perception or the the thesis of the investors. And you mentioned sort of the growth and the the trade-offs. Can you talk a little bit more about what that conversation was and what were some of the the things that you wanted to ensure that there was alignment about? I think there's so many different ways to think about company growth and the type of culture that you want to build. And I think what we just cared about was being really open with people about the type of company that we want to build. And then that either resonated or didn't resonate. And usually it resonated with the people that were then very aligned with like, yes, I can see how that could be a successful, enduring company. And so I think we were pretty clear around sort of like, yes, we want to grow and we, we want to have strong growth, but it's not really growth at all costs. It was not our approach. And I think that can be the approach of a company. It just was not our approach. And I think we were pretty clear around that. I think we're also pretty principled thinkers around a lot of things, whether it comes to kind of like how we think about compensation at, at Cocoon or how we think about the type of culture that we want to build and um, having a really transparent culture and having a culture of debate without ego and blameless postmortems and um, that type of more open environment. And I think, again, that resonates with some people, maybe doesn't resonate with others. It's a little bit of just like being authentic to yourself and being really clear about like the type of company that you envision um, going forward, which is like a big, successful, impactful business with really strong economics and a really strong culture. And for us, like the type of place that is hopefully career defining for people that have worked here. So big, big emphasis on people. Again, I think it's just like you just have to be yourself and then people will either resonate or not resonate with that. Absolutely. I have a follow-up question about clarifying the type of company that you want to build because one of the authors that like shifted my entire mindset is Simon Sinek. And he talks about, you know, starting with why and the the golden circle becoming both a megaphone to communicate your values and what you believe to attract the right types of people, but also a filter to help make certain decisions for the company and the partners that you bring on. And so as you're sharing this of like really clarifying the type of company that you want to be, the values that you have, the culture that you want to do, the style of growth that you want to prioritize for as like a really powerful filter for the types of partners that you bring on. Um, do you have any recommendations or approaches to help somebody create clarity around the type of company that they want to build? So uh, we we now have four core values, which I think of as our internal operating system. They really dictate a lot of how we work as individuals, how we work as a team. The things that we value are really, really clear, such that when people are interviewing with Cocoon, it's probably the same thing. Like for some people, these values really resonate. It's like, yes, those are things I would care about in a company. And for other people, it's possibly like, no, like, I don't know, that's not really quite the right fit for me, which is exactly what you want. But we didn't really formalize those values until recently. The reason being probably because I felt... Like it has to be perfectly articulating everything that we want and probably spent way too much time just trying to like refine it. And, and so it took a while to actually like publish it. However, I think a lot of the early culture of a company is actually dictated by the personalities of the founders and the early employees and how they operate. And so I think a lot of that just came through in conversations that we were having with investors as well. And so maybe the piece of advice, which I didn't really do, but could have probably done is to actually just like write out the key things that matter to you. I think for me, it was a little bit more in my head and came up in conversation. But if someone wanted to be really clear and use that as a filter, then I'd probably talk about the things that actually matter. Like, are you going to be a company that 
that grows at all costs? What does it mean to grow at all costs? What would you, where would you be willing to grow slower in exchange for what trade-off? Like, cultural or whatever it may be. But yeah, probably like writing that stuff out for yourself and sharing it with a co-founder or early employees or an investor could be something really great to do. I have the same feeling that sometime the core value came up from the just natural conversations. Would you mind share what are the four values? One of our first value is um, we're in the arena, which I don't know if anyone has read Brene Brown, but um, it's a quote that she references in there, not her own quote, but um, really this idea of very much being in it and leaning into it, not just kind of like sitting on the sidelines and critiquing what's happening, but actually being like a player in this game and um, really putting yourself into it and being vulnerable in that way. So that's the first one. The second one is Row Together, which is um, very much focused on this idea, as as it probably indicates, this idea that we are moving as one. So there is the individual, but really like how do we think about the team and the outcomes of a team and, and really be there for each other through the amazing moments, through the lower moments as well, and really have this united effort and same direction in which we're moving. Um, the third is Move With Speed and Conviction. I really like this one. And I feel like, um, I mean, I like them all, but um, this one is something I think that really, really resonates with how I have tended to operate a lot of my life, which is just, you'll never have perfect information, but it's way better. I think this is actually a little bit from Brene Brown too. It's way better to move forward and be boldly and be boldly wrong than to just continue to waffle on something. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of at some point you have to take a leap and you gain as much conviction as you can with as much information as you can. But at the end of the day, bias to action and speed and movement is really, really important. So basically this idea of move with speed, yes, but like also do it with conviction and then we can make progress and we can course correct as needed. Um, but at least we're moving and making moves. And then the fourth one is everyone is a creator. And that one, again, really like that one. I think it really speaks to something that we believe in, which is everyone has so much creativity in them and everyone is a builder and everyone is a creator, whether you're building a sales playbook or um, you're building kind of like a press release or um, kind of like positioning for Cocoon or you're building the product. But everyone really, especially at an early stage company, probably even later, really is just creating and creating from nothing. And so really tapping into people's zone of genius and creativity around that. And again, like this culture of sort of pushing each other's thinking forward. So those are the four that we um, have aligned on. Each of them have a lot more detail under them. Um, they go into specifics of how we operate, but at a high level, those are, those are our four key values. We may need a second episode just to dive into how do you personalize the values? Yeah. I think about that a lot, actually. I think probably 30% of my time, twenty at least 25% of my time is just thinking about, well, where are we achieving these things? Like, where are we actually, um, like, these are all, these are aspirational values too, right? It's not to say that we're always doing all of them every time. They actually re require constant refinement. And so a lot of my time is actually spent thinking about, well, how do we operationalize this piece of it? Like, how do we seed that idea at the company? How do we provide the framework for someone um, to be able to adopt it? How do we model it so that pe other people start doing it? In in all types of forums, like on email, in person, on Slack, at an all hands. I do actually think values are just such a core piece of the company and something that you kind of have to fiercely protect as you grow because you want that you have defined that this is the way in which we operate. And so you have to keep being really explicit about that. And again, creating the, the mechanism so that people can do that as well. I could totally see how these values stemmed from like the things that you're most passionate about when you're talking about like the type of company that you want to be. I almost can like see the like the footnotes of like some of the sources as like you share some of these ideas and them being like a source of passion pride, but also how you personally operate within the world. And so I think that's, that's really cool. And it's, it's really cool to see how clear they can become. 
Yeah, definitely. I have very much enjoyed the exercise of finally getting them to like the wordsmith version that we wanted to publish and, and then being able to really use them with the team. So any decision that we're making or anything that's happening, we can anyone at the company can always point back to one of our values so that we're all on the same page about it. We started doing a values award at all hands, which I think is a really nice way to acknowledge um, when people are really embodying one or several of these values as well. Better to move forward and be boldly wrong. That quote is really is really sticking with me. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about building the product and some of the the operations strategy here. Because I think what's interesting is, you know, we, we've talked to a handful of folks sort of within the SaaS space, but in those areas, oftentimes, like there's a little bit less regulation or design constraints. And so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about the experience and maybe some of the challenges of building the product and building your strategy within a, a more heavily regulated space. I think a lot of it is I, I've always been in heavily regulated spaces and have always been building in those spaces. And I actually love it because I feel like there is often an opportunity to build something that can be really impactful and take all the complexity of the regulatory landscape that sits behind the scenes and make it really simple um, for the end user. And that's actually unsurprising, I think, that I'm actually building in the space of leave because I do have this fundamental belief that it is insanely complicated. So how can we actually make it easier for everyone involved and make their lives better? The way that we really approach it is sort of, it's really important to understand the regulatory landscape. So for Cocoon, especially, it's very important to understand when we think about leave and administering a leave, there are different factors at play. So there's, for example, like what is a state policy around time off? What is the federal policy around time off for this specific type of time, caregiver leave, let's say? What is it required for you to qualify for that time? So similar to a loan, for instance, where you might have eligibility criteria that go into this person qualifies, this person doesn't qualify. Similarly, for a lot of these federal laws and state laws around time, there are requirements around, well, you must have worked this many hours in the past year, or you must have worked for this amount of time at a particular company. And so it's really important for Cocoon to understand, well, what are the different laws that are at play? How do we actually calculate eligibility for those? What are the different income sources that someone could have from the state to private disability to an employer paid program? Um, and really think about how do all of these things come together to compliantly administer a leave that is in line with state law, federal law, and then also accounts for an employer policy that may sit on top of these different laws. I think the way that we approached it is really map out the leave space from a regulatory standpoint, and then really think about how do we codify um, all of these different laws around time and pay and how do they interact with other options for time through an employer or other options for pay through an employer or private insurance and piece that together. You could almost think of the analogy as like a TurboTax for leave, where the same way that TurboTax has thought about the codification of all of these different tax laws, we think a lot about the codification of all, a lot of different state laws. Does that answer your question? It definitely does. And so I was thinking like understand the regulatory space, map it out, and then codify the options is kind of like the, the high level framework when somebody's entering into that, that new space. Yeah. And sort of understand the implications of like anything that we're building. I think this is this is true of any company that either is a is regulated itself or is building a regulated space. It's sort of just understanding, like when you think about building a product and you think about a product brief and you think about, okay, well, what are the requirements from like a user's perspective or an internal ops or support perspective? You're also then similarly adding the vector of what are the requirements from the legal side? Like what must we abide by here? Or like, what are our options? Because usually it doesn't, it's not always so black and white. It's like there are many different ways to achieve a compliant outcome. And so kind of thinking through with a, a really great legal team that we have, what are the different avenues for Cocoon to solve this particular problem. You mentioned the legal team as sort of a, an important design partner in this conversation. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about design thinking and legal needs and translating legal into the product. What does that conversation and, and collaboration look like between the design partners, the legal partners, and to get to more of like an end product? I think that's 
actually ties back to our value. Everyone is a creator. We know the base requirements that exist, but like I said, there's often many ways to solve the problem, both from like a design perspective in terms of like how might someone interact with this, but also from a legal standpoint, you usually have or often can have many different options for how you achieve a certain outcome. Again, with their own, each with their own set of requirements. And so a lot of the interaction is actually like our PD or like product design engineering teams and legal teams having a discussion around, well, this is the pain point. What are the different ways in which we could solve it? And what would that mean for the user? Or what would that mean for the employer? When I think of legal or our legal team, I actually think of a really creative group of people that are taking their knowledge of the law and then applying it in a problem solving context for how we build a product. I really appreciate the two questions you shared of what are in that discussion of what are all the different ways that we can solve and, and what would that mean for the users or for the employers as a way to first source ideas before making decisions. I think that's really great. Can you chat a little bit more about the process and approach you take to identify ideal customer profile? So with our research, we were able to validate this is a really big pain point. We don't have a tightly defined ICP. This is like really, really early on. But we do believe that this type of customer could be one for a cocoon. And so sort of like having these early customers that are then using the product and giving us feedback along the way in that process. And as you get more and more customers, I actually think, I don't know if this is true of every company necessarily, but we definitely experience a cocoon where you almost have like a wider ICP because you don't quite, you have a hypothesis on the different types of customers that could be a fit for a cocoon, but you don't really, really know until you actually have it in the hands of customers. And so along the way, then you can start to really refine the ICP, which is like, well, these customers are having an amazing experience with cocoon. Like what are the qualities that they share? These customers have had actually a couple of issues here and there. Like, why do we think that that is? Is that based on the makeup of the employee base? Is it based on like a thing that they need that Cocoon does not yet support, but will support in the future. And then you just have to be really honest about it because it's actually very easy. And we definitely did this in the beginning to just say yes to a lot of different types of customers. Because like I mentioned, we also had a ton of inbound. And so in the beginning, you're kind of like, amazing, we have a line of customers <laughs> let's take them all. And then along the way, we were like, oh, like actually, I don't know if our product today in today's version is the best suited for this type of customer. And we'd much rather bring this type of customer on when the product can support them. And so then I think you have to become really focused around what are the types of customers that our product can support and be really honest with the customers too, for whom it may not be the best fit today, but paint the path of how it could be down the line. Because we would much rather end a relationship with a customer early if we know that there's not a fit there, acknowledging where there might not be a fit, and then have the opportunity to win them at a time when we really can support them incredibly well. Because at the end of the day, we want people to have an incredible experience with the product, whether you're an employer or an employee. And it matters much more to us that that is achieved. And so we would go on sort of the timeline that is appropriate for that. To recapture on that, so there are a few factors that are in play. There's the, do they have a problem? Uh, is there alignment on that? And are they willing to solve a problem by a product? And also, it feels like the current version of the product, which is evolving over time. So that's another factor. Uh, what other factors that come into play in terms of identifying the, the right customers at a given time? Yeah, some of it is like, okay, are the what are the types of leaves that this employee base tends to take? Are those leaves supported by Cocoon? I think different industries will have a different set of leaves that Cocoon's product will need to contemplate. And we will. Like, I think when you think about company building, it's like we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of building all of the things that we can imagine building over years to come. And so that's where I think you have to just be really disciplined around, okay, we're not quite there. Like, we won't be able to support these particular things. That will be very important for this customer. If they use Cocoon, they're probably not going to be as happy as they would be if we did have those things. So let's just get 
get them when we do have these pieces. And so some of it is just thinking about what are really the pain points that Cocoon's product is solving today? And is that a match for what this particular employer and their employee base needs solved? In many cases, yes. And that that is like your ICP then. And in other cases, no, in which case we think about those as our concentric circles of ICP, which is like, what would we need to build in order to serve that market really well? And so if I were to really just distill it down more generally, it's really just like, is this product going to solve the pain point? And is it going to do it really well? If yes, then that customer is in our ICP. If no, then we would consider them outside of our ICP and want to get them at some point in the future. Uh, follow-up question on that is now the ICP is clear. Uh, how do you uh, design your good market motion with that insight? I think then when it's clear, okay, who's your ICP, then you're really breaking it out into what are the characteristics of this type of customer? Like maybe it's like where they're geographically located. Maybe it's what their employee, like how many employees they have. Maybe it's the industry that they're in. There could be so many different factors that play into that. And then a lot of it is trying to be then very targeted. So because we do get a lot of inbound too, then it's like when we think about a qualification call, it's making sure that we are asking the right questions up front to be able to qualify or disqualify a customer and explain why in the case that it, it may not be a fit. So a lot of it is then thinking about if we're super clear on who we're targeting and those characteristics are not, you can't Google those characteristics necessarily for a company, then how do we ensure that on a first call that we're having, we get the information we need to be able to determine is this customer in our ICP or not in our ICP? And then the general sort of sales motion, thinking about it a lot is sort of like, how do we build a predictable, repeatable revenue engine for Cocoon? And so really the, a lot of that in the beginning is through trial and error. You're sort of thinking about, well, what's the messaging that's sticking? What, how are we doing objection handling, et cetera? And then we start to develop actual playbooks around that, which can be used to scale the company as well. But having a really crisply defined ICP helps you scale that because otherwise you're constantly pulled in five different directions and you, that playbook cannot work for five different customer types, nor can your product. And so I go back to like, I would way rather have a smaller, crisply defined ICP and then over time expand that ICP than try to get everyone at once. I wanted to dive into one more one more story related to the the product building, and that's your story around the trade offs on scaling between manually stop gapping the product versus automation, and your story behind that, and the thought process behind that, and the impact on scaling. Um, so, can you share a little bit more about that? At the very start of Cocoon, I think we sort of took the path that I think a lot of companies take, that if I were ever to start a company again, I'd probably do it very differently. But um, we did take the path of, again, so so much inbound. Let's say yes to everyone. Let's do everything. Um, let's take it all on. Oh, let's like do this part manually because we know we're going to build it anyway. But the thing that we quickly realized is that the thing that you might be doing manually for 10 customers, like suddenly if you have 80 or 100, you're not prepared to do that thing manually. You actually anticipated that you would build it before you reached that point of 80 to 100 customers. But then along the way, you realize that there are many, many other things that you would also have need, want to build or have built instead of that thing. And you kind of end up in this cycle where you're constantly feeling a little bit behind where it's like, yeah, we're going to automate it. Oh, but first let's build this other thing. And now oh, we find we're still doing this particular part manually. And I think that's where discipline comes in again, because we did that for a period of time. And we felt like, why can we never catch up? Like the gap between like our product surface area and the software that's built seems to continue to expand because we seem to continue to get more and more and more customers, but we're not being able to build as quickly as the rate at which our customer base is growing. And so that made us be really disciplined around, well, we need to break that cycle because we're still very early in the company. Luckily, we have the opportunity to do that. Um, and so let's 
break that cycle by being really, really, really clear on taking the things that might be manual that we really believe shouldn't be and prioritizing building them. And then also, again, crisply defining the ICP such that all of the kind of like custom or new things that come up, we're not just taking on manually, like we're taking on that customer when we built it as software. And so the approach has shifted a lot to now by default, we build the thing as software because we know how quickly the customer base can scale and how unscalable that manual piece is. I think there's just been a big mindset shift at the company um, last year after we started to notice like, oh, we don't seem to be getting out of the cycle. So we need to take some drastic actions here. Um, so mentality now is very much ship it as software as the default. Very, in very, very exception cases, would we agree to do something manually knowing that it would eventually be automated? But I think I'm very glad that we did make that mistake, but I'm very glad that we learned it early in the company's life cycle, like within the first year, because I think something like that, it's a very big effort to, to shift. But I think if you're much further along in the company with way, way, way more customers, I think it is a much harder pivot to make in the strategy. So I want to ask you about default delegating and how to identify where to invest your time as the CEO and, and co-founder. Can you share a little bit more about your perspective on that and how that impacts your decision making and how you scale yourself and your time? My default is who should be the DRI for this or the direct, directly responsible individual. Like, is there someone at the company who should do that or who can do that? Usually now, we're about 60-ish employees now. You, at this point, the answer is usually yes. Like there is someone that is actually better positioned um, to do that than, and I would end up being more of a blocker. If not, then maybe that's something that's on me. But then I'm thinking, well, who is the type of hire that I need to make in order for these types of decisions to be taken by someone else? My goal is to sort of get to the state where I'm making 0.1% of decisions for Cocoon and the 99.99% of decisions are being made by the rest of the team, either org leaders, team managers, ICs directly. I just think that it's really, really important that we get to a state where just in, in order to move really quickly and with flexibility, we get to a state where people have the right information at the right time so that they are able to make these decisions and they're not needing to be kind of like escalated up or blocked on anyone. And so I'm a huge believer in the power of delegation, both on projects and work, but also just on decisions. Like I really don't want to be the decision maker for the vast fast, fast majority of things at Cocoon. I love that. That's super helpful. The question of who do I need to hire to make these types of decisions? We have a couple rapid fire questions if you're ready to wrap yeah. things up with us. Perfect. What are you reading or listening to right now? Um, I'm listening to on Audible, the book Attached, which is about attachment theory, which has been really, really informative and has shaped the way that I think about just how humans attach to each other. Founder resources that have been most helpful. First round is an investor in Cocoon, and they have a lot of really amazing programs that they run. So personally, have found that to be particularly helpful, but also really just finding founder friends, even just two or three people that are at the same stage or a stage later than you. That's really where I get the vast majority of my advice, as well as our investors. How do you diffuse stress? I have a pretty high bar for stress. Like it really takes a lot to stress me out. And I think it's because the way that I diffuse it is just thinking to myself, like, what is the impact of this in the grand scheme? Like, does this really matter? And is this solvable? And usually for me personally, if the answer is like, this is very solvable, you just need to figure out how to solve it and who, who to help you solve it. That just takes away my stress. So usually it's just having the perspective that 99.99999% of things are solvable and just like focus on figuring out how to solve it rather than getting stressed about it. I love that. Final question. Is there a quote or a mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? 
I mean, I always think of Brene Brown because I really feel like I really enjoy listening to her her stuff. I think probably most recently it's the we're in the arena one that I think I've reiterated to so many people and made its way into our values just because I'm just such a believer that it's so hard to build a company. That's why you see such few companies that actually make it because there is so much that goes into making it happen that I just want to acknowledge for anyone that is building a company, whether you're a founder, or whether you're an employee at the company, like you're doing it, like you're actually making it happen. And there's so much to be said for that and so much to be appreciated for that. So I think that that sentiment of, yeah, you're in the arena, you're not just sitting on the sidelines is very, very powerful. You are in the arena, a powerful way to close us off, Mahima. Thank you so much for your time and for the stories and everything behind Cocoon. Uh, It's been incredible. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.